Welcome to the Solar Podcast. Today, Dave is speaking with energy industry veteran Peter Kelly Detweiler. Join us as they discuss Peter's career journey into renewables, the complex policy dynamics around decarbonization, the volatility of electricity pricing, and the equity issues inherent in the energy transition. Let's get started on the Solar Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Solar Podcast. This is Dave Anderson, your host. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Peter Kelly Detweiler. Peter actually comes to us with a vast amount of experience. He's uh, uh, he's spent over 30 years in the energy sector. Um, he's he's a fantastic author. He's a speaker. He can be easily found online. Uh, certainly, there's going to be opportunities for us to talk about some of the things that he's already been quoted as having said in other places. Uh, he's also been an advisor, uh, a business advisor. Um, he's been a business executive in the energy space. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Peter, I got to tell you, everyone that comes on the show, uh, it seems like however they find themselves in the renewable space, uh, there's almost always a story and I'm sure you have one as well. So Peter, how is it that we find ourselves today talking on a podcast about renewable energy? And if you wouldn't mind just filling in certainly some of the gaps that I certainly left uh, about your your fantastic and and long and and, and really uh, um, um, incredible uh, um, uh, career that you've had up to this point. Well, thank you. Um, And it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I got into energy, uh, like many things in my life, sort of backwards. (laughs) I had been a German major in college and then had a degree in development economics uh, as a consequence of leaving college and hitchhiking through Africa and just being just entranced by the continent of Africa and the development challenges they were facing. Now, one of these, obviously, clearly today is energy poverty, but that wasn't my focus at the time. Um, I spent years working in Africa and got married and went there with my wife. And then we had a difficult pregnancy, she more than I, uh, but came back to the States and I didn't have a job, but she'd always reminded me that whenever I'd pick up the economist in Accra in Ghana, where we were, come about a week late, that I always gravitated towards the environmental issues section. And that I, I recognized that was a passion of mine. And I ended up um, through happenstance working for a consulting group that was advising the Cree Indians of Northern Quebec. And they were fighting large mega hydro dams on their land that were being built without their say so. Uh, And and then other Aboriginal groups, the Cree in Manitoba, Ontario, and other places hired us as well. I didn't know anything about energy, but my boss was a genius and he did not like to write. And so he would process all of this information, this prodigious, enormously talented brain of his, and then just sort of spew it out and rely on me to make sense of it, whether it was writing testimony or short form articles or whatever. And so after five years in that job, we won all of our cases, which was great for our clients and bad for us. So then two years in Chile working on efficiency projects down there it was much cheaper to harvest a ton of carbon down in Chile because it was less efficient than here in the U.S. I was down in some U.S. government grants. Then came back in 1997. That's right when retail competitive markets were opening up. So in fact, the first invoice ever rendered in that industry, I've got the floppy disk in my bag. That was my going away present from Constellation Energy 15 years later. That plus a year's worth of severance. Two things I appreciate, both of them, the severance perhaps a little bit more than a piece (laughs) of plastic. But at Constellation, I began to understand how markets work. And I was asked to head up the demand response group, which gave me a keen appreciation 
for the customer side of the meter and how the customer side of the meter could interact with power markets, both distribution utility companies and also wholesale markets. And so as I, I eventually became an SVP at Constellation heading up that DR group, we eventually had 1,700 megawatts of dispatchable load. Next to me was the SVP, now the CEO of Power. His name was Mike Smith. He was developing the solar business. And then there was another guy who was working on the energy efficiency thing. So ultimately, Exelon bought us. They didn't want a virtual power plant in 2012. So I left, got my years worth of severance, and started writing for Forbes. And back then, you could see that the storm clouds were brewing. Clearly, carbon was already an issue. But what was the technology? What were the business models? So I started writing for Forbes. That year, I think I wrote 150 articles, sometimes two a day. I got to interview the wow. CEOs. I got to interview the CEOs of all the battery companies because they were all these incipient companies with five, 10 people, some emerging lithium-ion technology. The CEO of Sunrun, uh, Lynn Yurick, now the largest residential solar installer, once I started covering their business models in Forbes.com, then it became an exercise in the Heisman because all these companies with their PR groups wanted someone who could understand and explain to the general public what they were doing. And I wasn't a journalist per se, but I was an energy practitioner. So unlike most journalists who wouldn't know the difference between a KW and a KWH, that part I intuitively understood. And so then... By 2014, 2015, I started to recognize that, oh, these pieces are going to start to come together. Storage and solar are perfect dance partners. Electric vehicles are beginning to merge into the space, and they're going to have implications for the grid. And, of course, renewables, you know, 1,000 megawatts in 2009, now with over 130,000, 30 of that behind the meter, wind, huge numbers, the whole grid transforming. I got a chance to document that to observe what was going on and chronicle that development as it happened. And so I, at some point, Dave, I realized, oh, my job is no longer to be a practitioner and a doer. There are plenty of people that can do that and do it really, really well. But there are very few people who can look across the landscape broadly and connect the dots here, 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 and here, whether it's hydrogen, batteries, solar, wind, electric vehicles. And if you pull on this yarn, on the loom, why does this one move over here? And what is that going to look like? So I, I figured out at some point, well, I might as well not do a job anymore and just become a storyteller and try and explain this to myself first and then articulate that to other people in different sectors of the space, depending upon what it was that they needed to understand. So now, for example, for American Public Power Association, Smart Electric Power Alliance, I teach seven and a half hour courses on distributed energy resources, electric vehicles, hydrogen, batteries and energy storage, and evolution of the grid, which obviously solar plays a huge fundamental part. This year, what we're going to install, 50% of installed capacity is going to be solar. None of these things exist in isolation anymore. It's a very intricate and interwoven ecosystem that's really hard to pull apart. So that's the fun part of it. Is it always changes. And I like to say it's a three-dimensional game of chess. And every time I look at the board, well, someone just put a new figure on there that I don't even recognize I have to figure out or took one off. And so that's a long-winded way of saying, that's how I started. Here's where I am today. <laughs> well, Peter, let's talk about that a little bit, that th those new pieces that have sort of found their way to the board. 
So obviously you've been interested in environmental issues since your time going back uh, early, early days in, in Africa, uh, gravitating towards those environmental articles. So I, I'm curious, what are the things that have surprised you over the years or things that you maybe thought would have been sort of winners in business or winners in terms of technology, uh, things that have surprised you that have sort of like made their way out of vogue and other things that have really sort of rose into prominence? Or have you not really been surprised? You've sort of like seen the story from the beginning. Well, I was surprised, I think, as most people were by the adoption rates of many of the technologies, whether it's EVs, whether it's batteries, whether it's solar, whether it's wind. And is that pleasantly surprised? Yes, or pleasantly, is it, because, okay. well, two things. The adoption rates were a lot faster than anybody had predicted. And then the cost curves, certainly recent COVID-related supply chain issues and some other bumps in the road notwithstanding, um, the fact that the technologies generally got cheaper. Now, wind with its own dynamic, that's a function of, you know, wind is a function of the cube or the wind speed and the, the square of the swept space. So you want to have bigger turbines, taller, longer blades. That's about material science, carbon fiber, that sort of thing. With solar and batteries, um, I was surprised by how effective Wright's Law or the experience curve is, where you double the global output, the costs fall by somewhere between 20 and 25, 26% which is a function of the relentless and brutal efficiency of supply chain coupled with material science. So you get, your cells get better just from a sheer chemical and physics perspective, and then you create half cut cells and shingling, and then perovskite comes on board, and of course, bifacial panels and heterojunction at some point. And so all these things conspire on the material science side with efficiencies in manufacturing to drive down the cost, which then, of course, accelerates the adoption dynamic. If anyone had said 10 or 15 years ago, we'd be at this level of adoption for the technologies that we now see as commonplace in the grid, batteries in people's homes, in cars, solar panels on rooftops, I would have said, yeah, you're living in a fantasy land. And yet here we are, and we're still probably on the low end of that adoption cycle. Yeah, I, I might both challenge you and ask you to elaborate a little bit more on these. So we talked about both capacity, which is a version of um, adoption, right? The amount of solar that's on the grid. But then when you're talking about the residential market, one of the critiques against it is, is that we're only really at 3%, maybe 4% residential adoption. So I would say that we're on the skinny side of the adoption. Where do you think we can get to, or what do you think that curve is going to look like? So obviously costs come down, technology yeah. gets a little better. You talked about that Swanson's law, but, but what is the, uh, um, what, what, what do you expect to see over the next handful of years as it relates to adoption? Well, a couple of main things. So let's assume that the material science dynamics continue because there's no reason they shouldn't. Chips are getting better. Humans are yoking their minds to more powerful computers to make better stuff. Now you start to move then into fundamental issues related to the grid itself, the economics of the grid and the physics of the grid. So one of the challenges obviously is in our low voltage grid, it was designed to be a one-way road. Now, when you have solar power exported across it and then vehicle to grid and other things, now you're creating a two-lane two highway. So you have issues around voltage and reactive power. You have issues around frequency, those sorts of things. And then you have economic issues where you have net energy metering, where meters essentially rolled backwards. And if someone was paying 25 cents a kWh for every kilowatt hour they exported, they'd get the same compensation. Place like California, that doesn't happen anymore because there's so much solar in the grid that arguably, once you get past you know six, seven, eight, maybe ten percent adoption rates, mostly wealthy people, 
than people who are lower income that live in multifamily housing or rental and can't have solar. Well, they're maybe potentially picking up more of the freight now because people like me, I've got 20 panels, 25 panels. Maybe I pay 20% of the old bill that I used to have. So there are these political and economic forces that now mitigate against that. And you get X amount of solar in there produces from eight in the morning to four in the afternoon. What does it do in the nighttime? How do you deal with the California duck curve, which now, by the way, is roosting in New England big time where I live. Last uh, February, there was a day where it was 60 degrees outside and we had beautiful blue sky and our net energy consumption was lower at three o'clock in the afternoon than it had been in three in the morning. It's a commonplace occurrence, happens more than 50 times a year here. So those sorts of issues can be addressed by, for example, adding a lot of storage and time shifting. So you take that solar energy, move it into the evening where the peak is. There are other technologies and business models, but it's not fundamentally now an issue of the technology. It's now an issue of how do we, do we operate our grids? How do we regulate our grids? And what do the economics look like? And how do we also create um, and address some of the equity issues by putting community solar in, for example, allowing more people to participate and how do we especially deal with some of the intermittency issues and even technical things like inertia and frequency where intermittency with solar resources can have an impact on voltage and frequency and even things like inertia where if you move to an inverter-based resource system, you've now taken out the massive rotating spinning masses of metal. Right back in the old days with steam-driven turbines, if you had a contingent issue where, let's say, a 1,000-megawatt power plant goes out. Let's take a simple case. So you got a grid, and you need 60 hertz in an AC grid like we have, 60 oscillations per second. And that's the heartbeat we need to have. If you drop down to, say, 59.2 for eight minutes, the whole grid will fail. Texas was about four minutes from failure during that February 2021 event. So let's say you have 30 units, each generating at 1,000 megs, and they're steam-driven, and one of them falls. Well, for about two seconds, you have the grace of the physical inertia in the grid. You slow down the other rotating masses of metal, more energy is released, and in about two seconds, if you don't have your primary frequency resources to pick up the slack, you're going to have some serious issues, i.e. grid failure. So now we're in a situation where we're losing that inertia because we're bringing in solar and wind. Now inverters can sense inertia and actually the batteries and even it's proven solar wind resources can provide inertia into the grid. But places like Australia are having a heck of a time dealing with the loss of physical inertia and substituting that with digital slash synthetic inertia. So there's economic problems, there's physical problems, and there's grid operational problems, both bulk power system and low voltage, which mitigate against a really easy adoption. There's always multiple layers of this puzzle that we need to, need to solve. And, and you peel away one layer of the onion, Dave, and that's like, aha, here's the next one. So you bring in, say, 25, 30% renewables. You solve that problem pretty easily just by running your other generation more flexibly especially your simple cycle gas turbines, some combined cycle plants. Now you add 40 or 50% renewables, like we're starting to see in some grids of Kauai, where you're up to 60%. Now you need storage. The cost-effective storage today is lithium-ion, about four hours of duration, then it becomes less cost-effective. 
Now it gets you to the, say, 60% range. Okay, so now you've got a pretty heavy reliance on renewables. What happens when the wind don't blow and the sun don't shine? Now you, not, now you need more than just capacity and short-term energy. Now you need more raw gigawatt hours, terawatt hours. So now you get into longer duration storage land, six, eight, 10, 12, maybe even 100 hours, like Form Energy with its reverse rust, you know, iron air battery. And then you get finally, if you want to go 100% into dealing with what the Germans call Dunkelflaute, the winter doldrums, where the sun's not as high in the sky, maybe the wind isn't blowing as much, now you have a raw terawatt hour issue. Now you solve that with something like long duration green hydrogen. And so as you move further down the migration path, new opportunities, but mostly new challenges prop or pop up that make it harder than otherwise would be the case. And we just have to go into that with our eyes open and understand we're gonna be surprised by certain things. Most of the tech is there, but there are economic issues, there are societal, cultural, and equity issues we need to deal with. None of it is simple. Yeah, I guess it was a little bit of a lazy question on my part as an interviewer to say, what do we got to do to get, you know, from three or four to, you know, 10%, whatever penetration? Because obviously, um, even in the United States, you talked about the world markets, but even in the United States, California's adoption is significantly different than Kentucky's. And the issues that California faces are significantly different than Kentucky. You obviously talked about New England, you talked about Hawaii and Hawaii, California, some of these yeah. markets are way ahead, obviously, yeah. of that three and 4%. Yeah, like Hawaii now, are, I think 90% of the new solar in Hawaii has, has batteries with it because you, you can't de facto add any more solar to the grid out there. The feeder lines are overloaded at certain times of the day. Yeah, I think ostensibly it's 100%. So yeah. I mean, for all intents and purposes, yeah. it's 100%. Yeah. And, and, and they really were the leader for the other states because other states are going to deal with the issue that Hawaii dealt with, right? They had 40, 50, 60 cent residential exactly. power, yeah. generally off of uh, you know diesel generators that were running the entire island of Kauai, for example. And they yeah. said, hey, we don't want to spend 30, 40, 50, 60 cents as well as burn all these, uh, you know, as well as emit all this carbon. And uh, they were really the leaders for the United States in terms of transforming their grid system. So it's been so their adoption obviously looks a lot different than the adoption does in my home state of Montana, for example. Yeah, so but you've got more facing. avoided costs, right? And that's that's a good thing, but it's also something that makes it harder to transition. That's right. Yeah. So I got to ask you, so obviously you're very well written, a very prolific writer. You spend a lot of time writing for Forbes, but you're also an author of your own book as well. Um, there's a couple of concepts from the book. And I would, by the way, highly recommend anyone that's listening to this podcast to go and get a copy of it. It's called The Energy Switch. It's easily found. Um, and uh, But one one thing you talk about, and I'd love if you wouldn't mind expanding a little bit on it from the book, is you talk about electricity being the most volatile commodity in the world. H how is it the most volatile commodity? And maybe you can kind of expand on, on sort of your, your thoughts from the book from that. Sure. So if you think about it, first of all, except for a small amount of storage we have today, mostly been pumped hydro, a little bit of batteries now, it's the only commodity that we produce and consume instantaneously, and it moves it near the speed of light. And it has to be in equal balance for the reasons we just talked about with frequency. So now you have a situation where um, you also have, because of the way markets are structured, um, and, and we're talking about where there are competitive markets, which is about 60% of the energy consumed, electric energy in this country is governed by competitive markets, whether it's New York, New England, Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, Mid-Continental ISO, Texas, California, et cetera. Now, what happens at any given time is prices are set by, there's a supply demand curve and the, the next costly marginal unit jumps in 
to meet the next unit of demand. And so there's always an auction, usually a day ahead auction. Let's say ISO says, I need 30,000 megawatts. And all these suppliers bid in. And the last one who bids in, let's say he bids $35 so that you hit the 30,000 megawatts with that last bidder. That's the clearing price. Everybody gets it. Now, as you go up that demand curve, you're calling upon units that are used less and less frequently and are more costly to operate. So on those hottest days, for example, where there's serious peak demand, you may be calling upon assets that weren't even used last year. They might be called upon three or four hours for the year and they got to make all their money right then. So your marginal costs that are set can be really, really volatile. And then there's other times when there's so much solar, let's say in California. So the duck curve this year, Q1, one o'clock in the afternoon, negative net demand in California was actually negative. That is, if you netted out all the renewables, there was zero demand, there was less than zero demand. So now prices actually can go negative where you pay somebody to take electricity because you don't want to turn off your generator. For example, your gas generator could be more expensive to turn off and start the next day than just to pay somebody to take the use, take, you know, some of your production. So you have a commodity where it could go. Imagine you're at a gas station and prices do the same thing they do in electricity. You pull up to the pump in your Ford F-150, not the electric version, maybe a 20 gallon tank, could be the 40 gallon tank. And at some point you fill up the thing and you might not even know the price because most of us don't know the real time price of electricity. You could fill up the thing and someone could walk up to you afterwards and hand you a check for $150 for having filled up your tank. Now, a day later, day and a half, let's say, because the first time could have been like early in the morning or midday. And then the next day is six o'clock at night when the sun's down and all these generating units are running and prices have gone up. Same car or truck, same gas pump, you pump it. And instead of, you know, prices having been negative $10 a megawatt hour, they could be in Texas, $5,000 a megawatt hour, right? So if it was gasoline, at one moment you'd be paying, you'd be getting paid 30 cents a gallon for gas. And no, another moment that gas could be costing you $500 a gallon. That's the kind of volatility we see interday sometimes. In Texas, there was one time in the grid where on one side, it was $6 a kilowatt hour, $6,000 a megawatt hour of a transmission constraint. The other side, someone was paying somebody $6,000 a megawatt hour, $6,000 a megawatt hour, $6 a kilowatt hour to take power. There's no other commodity like that in the world anywhere that can move that quickly in terms of its price volatility. It's just insane how market dynamics function. That is crazy. And maybe just to kind of take that a little bit further, we can take even the practical example. Obviously, this is the solar podcast, so we talk a lot about solar examples of energy costs. And, yeah. and California has been uh, recently through legislative change. We're now in what we call the NEM 3.0 phase. Yeah. And that NEM 3.0 phase has been a phase. It's been a feeling out period for solar companies as well as for homeowners trying to figure out how do we optimize the right amount of solar for every customer. And, and it used to be with NEM 2.0 that the calculations were pretty simple with NEM 3.0, it gets a lot more complicated. You introduce storage and how to hold on to power, when to sell power, these sorts of things. Um, and I'll, I'll just maybe as a teaser to my question, say um, uh, NEM, NEM 2.0, basically kilowatt hours, when you used them and when you generated them, they had a similar amount of value to any given homeowner. Now, um, any given homeowner uh, at the lowest times might only get 
you know, a handful of, you know, low single digit cents, two, three, four, five cents per kilowatt hour. And in the peak times, which is going to be for very small windows in September, um, homeowners that are selling kilowatt hours back to the grid are expecting to get, you know, something like two, three, four dollars uh, per kilowatt hour. And I don't have the numbers memorized anymore, but uh, but the, it's a huge, huge variance for for solar homeowners about how you use, generate and, and then also receive value for the electricity you put under the grid. So what's your been what's been your position uh, in terms of these maybe as a broader question, these big changes to the industry, how it's been difficult to sort of like grow, given that there's a, a little bit of regulatory volatility. Um, but also, uh, do you see that these things are opportunities or just challenges? What's your sort of like sense on them 3.0 and um, specifically, but more broadly, you know, how how this might slow down or impact the ability for the industry to grow? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So you start with this premise like um, there's this concept called negative covariance, which is for some commodities, the more you add of something, the less value it has. So every unit of solar you add into a market like California's that, that's saturated, where you actually do drive into negative net demand period, you actually not only the value of your new marginal unit drops, but anyone else that's not hedged, that doesn't have a firm contract, the value of their solar goes down. It's kind of like my first beer, I get a high degree of utility. And by the fifth one, I am into negative covariance land. It is not a good thing for me. And it's the same with solar. So now what's interesting about that is, um, unfortunately, the dynamic moves so fast that if you're a solar installer building a business model and you go from 2.0 to 3.0, you got whipsawed around, right? Because you didn't know what to expect. And that's the thing about investments in business. People like stable investment environments so they can spreadsheet things and know what their rate of return is going to be. And the stroke of a regulator's pen can either make or destroy a business very, very quickly. And we've heard tales of a number of solar installers that have gone bankrupt in the last year. Combination of NEM 3.0 and also supply chain and so on. Now, but what the market does in a, in a more beneficial sense is it's providing a market signal that says the value of that solar produced at 11, 12, one o'clock in the afternoon is relatively de minimis, but the value of energy in the evening is multiples of that. So what does that do? It gives all kinds of solar companies the incentive to put batteries in. And so you see companies like the large ones, the Sonovas and the Sunruns and others now installing batteries, and many of them have attach rates of north of 60%. For new solar installed, 60% or more batteries are going in. And so you, so all these things, yes, they're challenges, but in many cases, they're also opportunities. The biggest challenge being the landscape shifts so fast, Dave, that it's really hard to know what your business is going to be like two or three years from now because of how rapidly the entire ecosystems are evolving and then the tariffs and the regulatory issues in response to that. Yeah. So you, you hit on one other thing that I'd love for you to expand on as well. So obviously we talk about energy in terms of what it costs to power. We talk about it as a return on investment. We talk about it as being a financially great investment, particularly on the residential side, but even commercial. Most people that are putting solar panels on are doing it for one of two reasons. Number one reason is, is that they're trying to save money on their electricity bill. The number two reason is they don't have access to electricity otherwise. So if you're an off-grid home, for example, and obviously there's a myriad of other reasons that people are certainly going solar. Um, but as, as it relates to that, it, it has been for a while. Right? Well, let me, let me rephrase that. Um, 
energy is a real social issue as well. It's not just a financial thing. And um, for a long time, and you hit on this, it's been a luxury of the of the rich. Most people that are adding solar panels on are the people that certainly could take advantage of the tax credits, but people that also could afford it and had access to great financing. Um, and the industry's done a good job of providing fin- financing, but that the, the the tax credits and the way that you monetize those tax credits, it's certainly been something that has favored the wealthy more than it has favored the disadvantaged. And uh, so the the IRA is introducing some new bills. The Inflation Reduction Act is introducing some new concepts that make it a little bit more accessible for more people. So I'd love to get your, uh, obviously you've lived all over the world. Um, and so I'd love to get your sort of take on why energy is more than just a financial uh, consideration. It's also a big social issue as well. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the question is, um, does one have a right to energy? Certainly we see all around the world when there's energy poverty, people do less well. I remember in 1986, I was working in Haiti for Catholic Relief Services or early 87, walking down the street in, uh, in Port-au-Prince and there was uh, a young student underneath the one functioning streetlight with a book. And I said, what are, you, what are you doing? And he said, I don't have light in my home and I'm studying. And, and that drove home to me like almost nothing else I've ever yeah. seen, the criticality of that electron and the illumination that came with it. In this country, Um, I think we can argue that we feel even more strongly that people here in this country have a right to a basic human right to energy. I I think we could argue that for the planet as a whole, but certainly we've had more of the luxury and have become accustomed to it. And that it's something that's cost effective for most of us. Of course, if we have discretionary income, our electricity bill of $150 or $200 is round off error. For somebody who's on minimum wage, that's days worth of work. And it may be that they have to make a choice between food on the table and rising electricity bills. So then how do we talk about that from an equity perspective? And how do we engage those people in the energy revolution, the energy transition in a way that is just and meaningful? Certainly, some of the things we can do are, for example, with multifamily housing where people can't have access to solar on the rooftops because they rent, for example, um, we can do what many states are now doing, which is promulgating community solar, where you might have thousands of panels in a field or some other area and fractional ownership and credit on people's bills, that sort of thing. In fact, I'm an early beneficiary of community solar in Massachusetts, where I have 20 panels about 40 miles away And if I pay $100, I get a credit of $115 on my bill. There's no reason we can't expand that kind of program to people who could benefit from it a lot more than I could. So, And then do the same sort of thing with used electric vehicles and find ways to build mechanisms into our incentives and our societal structures to allow more and more people to participate. And one other thing I will add is when people do not participate, they often become embedded foes of that change. There's a thing that I learned about in the Fletcher School called the tunnel effect, which is if you're driving down the road, and even if you're making great you know, progress down the road, but you're in a traffic jam, you might be going 20. If the guy next to you is going 25 or 30, you're unhappy because you're comparing yourself with others. And so if we create these inequitable situations in society where only some people participate in this, Guess who we've now potentially recruited to vote against the energy transition the next time elections happen? All those people who are left out of the equation. 
And in fact, um, when I was at RE Plus, Van Jones was there having a great conversation during the keynote about what we need to do for energy equity and how do we transform the world so that more minorities and low and income uh, participants can get involved in this. It's not by any means a series of simple levers. It involves holistic thinking and, and a lot of goodwill and some trade-offs that have to be made. There's no question. Yeah, I don't think we spend enough time on this podcast talking about energy equity. I love the the story you tell. In fact, my next question was going to be talking about basically things that you've seen around the world and and how electricity changes communities and changes, you know, people always for the good and, and, and just access to it. But the story you share about, you know, the boy reading a book under a streetlight is, is one that most people that are listening to this podcast won't be able to relate with unless they've spent time, um, you know, away from the United States. So you know, I, I, not, I, I yeah. love that story. There's, there's one other one that resonates. There's a book, Edward Hoagland was a great essayist from, I don't know, I think I read his book 30, maybe 40 years ago. And it was called African Calliope. And he wrote about this tanker truck that had overturned I think it was in the Sudan, Dave. And these people didn't have experience with fossil fuels except for kerosene in their lamps. And they thought it was kerosene, but it wasn't. It was gasoline. And they brought it home to their villages and lit the lamps. And he writes how home after home exploded in the darkness wow. until they understood what was happening and the volatility of the fuel they were dealing with. And again, driving home, the desperation that people have and how closely so many humans live to the margin of a very fragile existence that we just take for granted. And energy is the thing that liberated us from, you know, slaves to the hours of the day. It was energy that basically created these imaginary animals that pulled all of our loads. And I mean, think about a car. We complain about $3.50 for a gallon of gas. If you're in a Prius, you can go 50 miles on that. If I said, would you rather pay $3.50 or push that car for 50 miles, which would you choose? We take that so for granted, and yet all these people in the world do not have that access. They don't have that imaginary labor force or real labor force that we have that does all the things that we enjoy every single day. It's kind of astonishing at some level. Yeah. What do you think here in the United States are the major challenges to the decarbonization of our grid system? Um, the very first one, unfortunately, is political, that half the country doesn't believe that there's a real problem or if there is that we can't, that either we're not the ones responsible for a bunch of it or we can't do anything about it. And I've heard all those arguments. We have a potential election coming up that could slow things down considerably. Although last time that happened, the states picked up the cudgel and marched forward pretty effectively. And we saw a lot of progress being made. So that's one piece of it. The other one is I think many people in this country and around the world have difficulty living in a world that's really complex. And let's face it, it is. And it's complexity around everything. Our taxes, uh, where we go to work, our commute, how we raise our kids. Like life is really, really complex. Now you take this energy transition, which involves all these changes that are happening within decades and have to because we need to push the hydrocarbon and carbon out of the equation as quickly as we can. We're still not at the new normal because we haven't yet reached stasis in terms of our emissions. So we don't know what the new normal is. So that means there's a mandate and an urgency to change this really, really fast. And that means there are gonna be winners and losers, lots of them. 
And so first of all, we have to think about how do we deal with the oil drillers and others who will be losers in this equation, have to be ultimately, unless we can figure out carbon capture and storage. How do we treat those individuals with respect and with dignity and compassion? Because again, if we don't, we create this alienation thing. And then how do we educate, especially the people who are on the margin, the ones who could vote? I mean, in this country, we're almost evenly split. So if you can sway two or 3% of the people, that's a massive shift of the pendulum in terms of the eventual outcome. So thinking then, how do we educate people about what this transition's about realistically? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And how do we march forward in ways for the betterment of most, if not all of us? But we don't like complex conversations in this country, we tend to shy away from them. So we've got to find ways to package this information in easily understandable, digestible ways. And I think our industry has done a pretty lamentable job of reaching out more broadly and explaining this. Yeah, we see the six EV ads on the Super Bowl, etc. But does anybody really understand the IRA, the average taxpayer? I just saw an article in Axios that the average taxpayer has no clue how many jobs are created by solar, electric vehicles, et cetera. We've done a really bad job. And as an industry as well, we've done a really poor job of lobbying for our interests. I think many people assume because we're on the quote side of angels, it's just gonna naturally happen. But at the end of the day, economics, let's face it, involves a struggle. There's competition there and there's a struggle for primacy. And sometimes I think we have to take the gloves off and fight the tough battle with the K Street lobbyists and be a little bit more hard-nosed about what we need to get the job done. I was frankly astonished that the IRA was passed. Of course, it was very, very close, but clearly there are a lot of people working behind the scenes for years and years and years that are ready to launch that and were opportunistic, opportunistic so when the time came. But I think as an industry, we need to be more organized about communicating what we do and making sure that people realize what the benefits are if we do it and what the challenges are if we don't do it. And we're now facing a billion dollar disaster in this country every two weeks. A couple decades ago it was once a month, 20 or 30 years ago it was once every two or three months. Now granted more people living near the coast, real estate costs more, but even if you take that aside, we're facing a more hostile climate because of the things we're doing. I think we need to make that clear to people too. There's a push in this and there's a pull. Yeah. Side so fifth, no, that, that's great. So, I mean, obviously there's the political side and obviously as an industry, we need to be more evangelists and obviously yep. thrilled Peter that you're uh, leading the charge there, or at least one of the people that's helped lead the charge there. Um, but, but what are the sorts of things do we need to happen to be able to really decarbonize our grid? Yeah. The other thing we need to do, by the way, <laughs> uh, we need a workforce. I mean, we, first of all, most people don't understand how sexy the power grid is. You and I do, but most people don't. Um, we need a lot more electricians. Uh, I would, if I were king of the world, I'd have our community colleges really stepping it up right now, training a lot more electricians. There are a couple community colleges. I wrote about one in the South for Forbes where I think they paid $10,000 a year. There was an actual transformer on campus so they could get their hands, you know, literally dirty. And they were getting $60,000, $80,000 first year out of school. The opportunities are there. Electricians, that's a pretty good job for a lot of people compared to the alternatives of pumping gas or you know, flipping burgers or something like that. But we've got to make those opportunities available to people. 
that the, I think more and more companies should have what the Germans do and others, the Lehrlingschaft apprentice, you know, ships that they have over there. I think we we really should be rethinking our educational systems to create more opportunities because we need the workforce, right? So that's sort of step one. It's just yeah. doing that. And then, of course, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the public utilities commissions, educating staffers and especially the appointees as to what's really going on. It's kind of lamentable how many of these appointed folks. I mean, this is complex stuff. It's taken me 32 years to remotely understand it. And every day I realize there's still something I didn't understand that I thought I did. So uh, getting the educated regulatory class more up to speed so they're making better decisions and also not wasting money. I'll, I'll editorialize something here. Um, right now, California is still putting too much money into the hydrogen infrastructure for vehicles, right? That's going to be a boondoggle and a waste of money and invites opposition to, to criticize it. And it's money that we could have spent somewhere else. When you have 100 units of energy that goes into making hydrogen, that then has to be compressed or liquefied and then goes through a fuel cell and then goes to an electric engine. You lose two thirds of the energy in that round trip equation versus losing 10% of the energy with an electric vehicle. Why, when there are only 57 hydrogen chargers in the country, all in California versus the hundreds of thousands of level two and three chargers, millions if you count level twos, why waste any more money in that H2 economy for passenger vehicles? Doesn't make any sense. That's a failure of understanding from yeah. the regulatory class. Yeah, Mark Jacobson, who uh, came on to the podcast, professor at Stanford, he's yep. uh, he's turned this for me at least into a, a math equation, right? And so he yep. he 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 suggests that as much as maybe forty percent of the spending in the Inflation Reduction Act there are on things that are um, probably not the right technologies, you know, and a lot of that is is. Uh, you know, give and take when you're when you're when you're putting in place sure, the largest sure. piece of legislation yeah. ever. There's some give and some take there, and there's, uh, but you know, in terms of the math of it, it doesn't make sense. Some of the things that we're spending money on, you obviously editorialized and talked about the hydrogen infrastructure yeah. in California. There's other things we could talk about as well. Um, and and the last thing, and I do think that this thing uh, that this deserves a major underscore, which is unfortunately as a society. It's all too often that tradespeople are spoken of in any sort of like negative light or as it's even referred to as a pejorative, you know, yep. and I, I love that you're talking about that. And for all the talk that's happening with AI and the loss of jobs and the loss of, 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 uh, you know, with, with AI driving and these things, all the, all the loss of jobs in the United States, renewable energy is creating an immense amount of jobs. And we need so many more tradespeople to come in and make a, a huge impact to this energy transition. And so I love that you're underscoring that point. And I, I wish that there was more evangelism on that point as well. Just the fact that we need more really skilled laborers to be able to help to, 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 to lead this, this grid transformation. So thank you for, for underscoring that as well. You're welcome. And you know, one other thing is local jobs, whether it's energy efficiency or rooftop solar, that sort of thing, the money stays in the community. And I used to do studies back in the day, like around the multiplier effect and the indirect, you know, when the money, you, you, you put the solar panels in or you blow the insulation into the house so it doesn't use as much energy to start with. So the homeowner saves money, the rooftop solar person saves money, and where does that money go? So much of it stays right in the local community. You wanna deal with low income, poverty issues, energy is a critical place where you can, you can get multiples of your initial investment 
if the jobs are locally focused and the economic benefits stay there, which solar and efficiency do in huge numbers. Well, I'll give you a, a great anecdote there. So I think it's well published, on, at least on this podcast, that I grew up in a coal mining town in eastern Montana, uh, where there were two or three large coal plants, or excuse me, uh, coal mines, and then a very large uh, four, well, a few different units, but in total six gigawatts of, of coal-fired energy that was being generated in again, Eastern Montana, the majority of that electricity is sold through energy contracts to the Seattle area. Yep. So you're talking about energy that's coming out of the ground, um, you know, close to a thousand miles away, that's being shipped through transmission lines over to Seattle. And you're, you're essentially taking the infrastructure that you have in Eastern Montana and you're putting it into the community. And it, I don't take any pleasure in trying to say that I'm looking for the, you know, that, 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 that comes at least in part and in small part at the expense of the, of the people that I know and love and trust and that in the community where I grew up in Eastern Montana. Uh, but I do think that by taking that large coal fired power plant, allowing the communities to be able to build up their own infrastructure through distributed energy um, in the community, that there's going to be m wonderful opportunities for all of the people in the coal town, the coal mining town yeah. that I grew up in. And, and so it's, it's in, in that regard, we always talk about winners and losers. I don't actually think in that regard that there's going to be a loser. I think that there's going to be more wonderful excellent paying jobs, um, you know, as a result of this energy transformation than the way that we're currently doing it. So right. the um, there's an the anecdote for you. Owner, right? And they've got the money and they're the ones with the influence. So the numbers don't yeah. have to be equal. It's, it's, the, it's the power behind it. Yeah. Well, we, we've alluded to, we've actually talked a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act. I'd love to get from your perspective, what are some of the other additional policies that we, you'd like to see happen? Or uh, can you maybe also, um, and this is maybe uh, something that you don't want to talk about, but but what's an example of a failed policy or a bad policy that you'd like to see go away? Well, um, one of the things that always has intrigued me is policies can be really crude and also they stay in place well beyond when they should sometimes. You know, sometimes the goal is to create parity between two resources, for example, and you subsidize one and then the subsidy ultimately should go away and doesn't. Um, and then people are, it's sort of, then the pigs are feeding at the trough. Um, so subsidies could be certainly more uh, well-defined. Now, my challenge with the approach right now is unfortunately, I'm, a, I'm an economist. And so, it, 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 which I'm cursed and blessed in that sense. I was yeah, not, not unfortunately, that's wonderful. <laughs> okay, so here's the deal. Right now we're subsidizing all these individual technologies. Could be hydrogen, could be the hydrogen hubs, could be electric vehicles, $7,000 for this, $3,000 for that, blah, blah, blah. What we're trying to solve for is carbon, CO2 or CH4 for the most part, CO2 or methane. And and we're therefore basically indirectly choosing all these different technologies to solve for carbon. And the way we do it right now is we create a situation where we're only doing it when the, within the US where the carbon problem is global. So if instead, if I were king of the world, the first thing I do is enact a carbon tax so that more carbon intensive industries would pay more money. And I would have a carbon tax for imports. So you couldn't say, oh, because in the US we have a carbon tax, it made it cost effective for us to export that industry to China. Uh-uh-uh. If China's producing that shirt with coal and we're producing that shirt with electricity made from gas, then all things being equal, our shirt's cleaner than their shirt. There should be a heavier burden on the import tax on that thing. 
we're solving for carbon. The problem is in this country, we can't have an honest conversation around that because people have labeled it a carbon tax. Now, it was John McCain and others in the Republican Party that were pushing for a carbon tax because it's an economically efficient way to solve for the problem. And then, of course, you can redistribute the taxes once they're collected so that if somebody's low income and they can't afford a better car and they have to drive a long distance for work, they're going to be you know, regressively impacted relative to other people. You could figure that out within redistribution mechanisms. But right now, instead, we're picking winners and losers in all the technology. So, of course, we're going to have the waste that Jacobson alludes to because the race between these technologies is constantly evolving. Better technologies will emerge. Other ones, though, will remain subsidized. So you create this really inefficient mess. Now, what I do like about the IRA is that for the first time ever, we have an industrial policy in this country. I should say first time since World War II that we actually have the makings of a coherent industrial policy in this country where we're now trying to onshore the production of our critical materials like solar panels and batteries and those sorts of things, rather than just giving that all away to China. It's no accident China leads the world in batteries and solar. They saw this coming 15 years ago and decided to dominate those industries. Europe is suffering as a major consequence right now. Their car industry is facing an onslaught of low-cost Chinese imports, many of which are made with coal-fired you know, steel, for example, um, because we haven't set up, you know, again, the right policies. China was aggressive. We weren't. Now, though, for the first time, we have the semblance of an industrial policy, which helps us to onshore these industries and maybe put some of this back in balance. I think we have to look at this energy transition from a global strategic perspective and understand that even as we hopefully peacefully interact with each other, the global energy economy is a cutthroat place. Let's not kid ourselves. It's super competitive and our government policies need to respond accordingly so that we're not disadvantaged. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. So I, I think we try to be an optimistic show. And so a couple of things that I always try to get from our guests are some of the forward looking statements. What are the things that you're excited about over the next five or 10 years as it relates to renewable energy? Is this energy transition, um, as your book calls it, the energy switch? What are some things that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I'm excited about, first of all, material science just gets better. We're going to make better stuff. I'm also excited about artificial intelligence. Um, the ability, there's a scientist at MIT named Priya Dante, and she, she sees two areas, use cases, where artificial intelligence can be really helpful. The first is the interconnection queue. So all these, you know, we've got what, 2,000 gigawatts, is that the right number? Yeah, I think it is, yes, of, of resources, mostly batteries, renewables, and, and store, you know, solar, wind, batteries in the queue waiting up to five years. Part of the reason is because everybody or many developers might have three or four projects in the queue. They know only one's gonna survive, but they don't know which one, so they have the other ones in as placeholders. AI can help you figure out and iterate, well, if this project succeeds, then what happens with all the dominoes downstream from that? You can run through more scenarios, you can figure out the cluster impacts and the cost way faster than we're doing today. All those interconnection studies could be done much, much more quickly with, with generative AI. That piece is pretty exciting. On the low voltage distribution grid, the challenge we discussed before around these bi-directional flows of power and voltage issues and the situational awareness 
necessary to coordinate what's happening at the bulk power grid with the DER low voltage grid. I think AI can provide a lot of situational awareness that's GIS based. So really local transformer focused, understanding what the characteristics are on the ground and hosting capacities and those and then basic operational capabilities in a real time basis that otherwise FERC order 2222 opens up that whole world to DERs, but at some point it's going to get so kludgy if we have grid operators dealing with individual vendors that are then connecting to devices, but we don't have figured out some universal registry in some way to create situational awareness. I think AI could do a lot for that and create a much more fertile garden for the planting of all those DER opportunities. So those I see is, is really exciting. Costs are going to continue to come down. I think also as the, you know, as the carbon issue gets worse, that there's two things I feel pretty confident about. Climate's going to get worse because we haven't slowed the issue down. Technology is going to get better. So all things being equal, we're going to go, we're going to face a, a future that looks a little more bleak, but, but for those of us trying to solve the problems, the toolkit, every time we open it up, the tools are going to get shinier and cheaper and better for the most part. So that's what I'm optimistic about. So that's the essential framework of the race. Over here, you have climate that doesn't, you know, atmospheric chemistry doesn't care about ideology. Never did, never will, doesn't know what a discount rate is. Over here on the other side, we have human ingenuity. We have hope, we have passion and dedication. And my hope is for us as a species trying to collectively do something we've never tried to do before, that we will figure our way out of this conundrum with the whole host of technologies that we're now beginning to deploy at scale and still don't fully know how they're gonna play out. Carbon capture, direct air capture, you know, EVs, everything else we've been talking about. We're still early days in this stuff. These technologies are very immature. So my hope is that they will continue to accelerate and provide us with new opportunities to solve this problem. Yeah. I know that you've provided a lot of individual and collective sort of uh, mentorship to many over the years. For people that are considering or looking into renewable energies, either as a career or as a passion project or something that they'd like to be involved in, even if only in the peripheries, what sort of advice do you have for young people looking into it? Uh, the first advice I have is to try and understand this stuff. And I'll make an offer. Um, if you, I, I read 35 newsletters a day. I scan about 140 article titles every day. It takes me one to three hours. I'm not saying you all have to do that. But I have a newsletter, a spreadsheet with my 35 newsletters, and they're ranked. And I have the URLs for the subscription pages for all of them. If you want it, I'm happy to provide that to you. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn with your email. I also have a weekly video that has the top five to 10 energy stories from the week. I'm halfway through the producing the one of this week. I'll finish it once we get off this call. And again, that, that's just a really quick way for people to understand what's happening high level. If you want to get in this space, the first thing you have to do, do is understand some of the basic implications of, of what's happening. And then as you delve deeper, it gets more and more nuanced. But self-education so you can engage in the energy conversation in some meaningful way uh, is, is, is step one. And then if you want to get further involved, then it's a question of identifying what you're passionate about, where you think your skills lie, what are the gifts you can give to this industry, what's the community you want to be surrounded with, and then picking out which subsectors of the industry you find most interesting 
um, that might challenge you, help you grow as a professional as, and as a human being. So those are sort of the basic ways. I, When people talk to me about what company or should I do this? I always say, why? Why are you interested? Who are you as a human being? What are your passions? Know thyself. And once you do that piece of the homework, then the other pieces fall. That's, 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 that's fantastic advice. Um, I love particularly just becoming educated about this. And there's obviously numerous ways to do it. I think it's fantastic that you actually provide as both a service, but also just as a personal endeavor, you know, these sorts of access to these articles and, and are aggregating the right sources of information in a single source. That's fantastic. I would highly recommend anyone that's listening to this podcast to subscribe to that um, and to follow you on LinkedIn and other places and other platforms. So maybe kind of one last sort of parting thought here. What are, what's kind of a key message that you'd leave for listeners or what's sort of like the main sort of underpinning or undertone that you always like to make sure that your listeners are sort of left with? Yeah, I, I think, uh, oh, I would say this. You know, it's easy to look around the world and get discouraged because there's a lot of bad news. And in fact, the news is about giving us bad news. We click on either what Kim Kardashian's wearing or bad news, Right. It's easy to get discouraged. Um, my antidote to that is participation. What I find about this space that I love is the fierce joy of the professionals in this space, trying to solve complex problems, sharing information with each other. I have never found an industry as generous as the renewable energy community, the sustainable community. And so I wake up every day Sometimes I actually say out loud, I can't believe I get to do this. I get to talk with people like you and by extension, the people who are listening to this podcast. The, the passion and the joy that I find in this space is the antidote to that uh, sort of Edward Munch scream, which is also there in all of us looking at this saying, oh, this is a huge problem. We need to solve it. The only way we solve this is with full on, fiercely joyful engagement. That's the only antidote I know, but it's a lovely antidote from my perspective. Yeah, Peter, I couldn't agree more. It's been absolutely fantastic to visit with you as long as I have. Thank you so much for dedicating and giving us as much time as you have. Um, I think that there's so many different things that that people that are interested in this space can do to, um, to, to obviously learn about renewable energy, to become educated about these things. But certainly you have been an absolute beacon for people that are interested in learning. And, and I love your both passion as well as your evangelism on these important issues. And so I would highly recommend again, and I've said it multiple times in the podcast, but I'd highly recommend the listeners of this podcast to follow you anywhere they can on any social media outlets, as well as to try to subscribe to the newsletter that you put out as well. Um, Peter, thank you so much for coming on and spending as much time with us as you did. Well, David, thank you for what you do. And it's been an absolute pleasure.